Y'all are pretty good with a brand new hymn, I gotta say. Uh, let's turn to our morning uh, New Testament scripture reading. You can find it on page 830 if you're using the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you. Uh, page 830. Uh, we are in Matthew uh, 24. We're actually going to be in it a little bit longer than I had uh, originally thought when I outlined these verses uh, months ago. We're going to uh, read the middle part of 24 and, and stop at the end of verse 42. I think there's something different happening after verse uh, 42 as Jesus moves to some parables to describe uh, the teaching that he's just laid out. Uh, you'll remember, and those who are here every week are tired of me saying this, we're in the last week of Jesus. Uh, we are uh, right a couple days uh, before uh, he will go to the cross. And he is entered Jerusalem uh, uh, triumphantly, and he is in the midst of a big period of teaching, a teaching where he strategically presses some buttons. <laughs> he is, it's time has come, and he's going to push all the buttons to aggravate the leaders of the day that they will take him to the cross. He is preparing his followers for what's to come. And part of that is looking forward to what's going to happen after he dies, he dies, rises, and ascends. What's next? That's what he's talking about in Matthew uh, 24, the parables of Matthew 25. And then we're going to get to 26 and we're going to get the, the closing narrative of the whole book. So the end is in sight. I said last week, uh, these are some of the most uh, argued over difficult passages in Scripture uh, about figuring out exactly what and when Jesus uh, is talking about. I made the argument last week that those verses 4 to 28 focused particularly on what Jesus calls the birth pains. That is the time of tribulation. That is from the, 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 the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost unto the return of Jesus is this age of birth pain until the arrival, the coming of Christ. And significantly, in that age, is the destruction of the temple, which is spoken of in these verses, which occurs historically about 40 years after Jesus is speaking, uh, and is a traumatic event that is a precursor to more of the judgment that is to come. We pick up Jesus speaking in verse 29 uh, of chapter 24, uh, where he uh, will describe the coming of the Son of Man, and we will, end, we will read through the end of verse 42. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we come to texts like this, sometimes confused, sometimes certain. And I pray, O Lord, That as we study together, as we aim to hear your word together this morning, you would speak words of hope to your people. That we would leave this place singing, Christ is coming, rejoicing to have those words on our lips. And I pray, O God, you would press upon all of us the seriousness of the return of your son and the need this very day to find the hope and the joy and the peace and the security that he alone, our rock, can offer. Lord, cut through all the distractions and speak your pure and simple and hopeful gospel to us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I can't tell you that because you're on a need-to-know basis. Somebody said that phrase to you before, right? It's pretty annoying when somebody tells you that, isn't it? You want to know something, and somebody else tells you, I know more than you, and you could only know a certain amount of the information, right? You know who really hates hearing that are kids from mom and dad, right? I know you kids are tired of hearing that from mom and dad. Just tell me everything. Why do you keep it secrets from me, right? Maybe it's from our teachers. Maybe it's from our bosses, right? We hate being on a need-to-know basis because it means the one who knows everything knows that we don't need to know everything, right? And they, holding that information, keep it from us so we don't know the very information we're dying to know. It can be so frustrating, right? When it comes to the biblical topic of eschatology, the study of the end times, you and I are on a need-to-know basis, And someone has determined what we need to know and what we don't need to know. That someone is, of course, the Lord. And that's frustrating. We want to know everything. We don't want to be left in the dark. We want to know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and why it's going to happen. But the Lord who knows us better than we know ourselves says we're on a need-to-know basis. You only need to know certain things. Because we're not called to be God. We're not called to know everything. We're not sovereign. Thank God we're not, right? We need, in this life, until the return of Jesus, 
to live by faith. That's what Christians are called to, to trust God and to live by faith. How does God lead us to live by faith? By telling us everything? No, then there's, there's no need for faith anymore. <laughs> by putting us on a need-to-know basis. But God gives us enough. He gives us everything, in fact, we need in this life to live by faith. He gives us all the knowledge. He gives us all, all the words of scripture. He gives us all the friends and the family and the churches, all the experiences. He gives us everything we need to live by faith until he returns. That's our focus this morning. What does he give us? And what do we need to live by faith until he returns? Look at some of what is emphasized uh, in these verses. In our Sunday school class, we were talking about studying the Bible, looking for repetition. Look at some of the repetition in these verses. Verse 32 says, you know the summer is near. Verse 33 says, you know he is near. Verse 36 says, no one knows. Verse 42 says, you do not know. So there's certain things we know, and certain things we don't know. That's actually going to be our outline this morning. What do, we, what do we know and what do we not know? What do we know is in verses 29 to 35. And what we know are the signs. We're going to go through some of these signs. We know because Jesus tells us what they are. What we don't know are the times. We don't know the time. We'll get to that secondly. What do, what do we know? The signs? What do we not know? The times. The signs Jesus gives us, he has given already, and he continues in these verses to give us a number of signs. I told you that all of 24 is confounding because there's so much disagreement on it. Well, these verses are especially confounding because there's even more disagreement uh, on these verses in particular, especially, I said before, we read Matthew 24 often either seeing all of it or most of it fulfilled in 70, the year 70, uh, at the destruction of the temple, or all of it or most of it fulfilled at the return of Jesus. And I told you that I see both of those things here. But where do we draw the line? And we're, a lot of us are going to draw that line in different places, right, in these verses. I believe verse 29 to 31 are the signs given for when Christ returns. These are the signs when Christ returns. And then in verses 32 to 35, we're going to see the signs until Christ returns. So when he returns, and then until he returns. So we look at verse 29, and we read immediately, after the tribulation of those days, sun, moon, stars, power of heaven, then will appear in heaven the, sight, the sign of the Son of Man. What is this appearing of the Son of Man? One option is this is the, the, the arrival of judgment that comes upon the city of Jerusalem, the temple itself, the nation of Israel. That is one option to interpret these verses very figuratively. That was quite an event that happened in Jerusalem. So maybe these verses refer to that event. Second option is to take them as looking to the future return of Jesus. I believe that better fits the context. We're looking forward to the signs of uh, the return of Christ. Just look at the language, verse 39. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. These are cosmic signs. Darkening, failure to give light, heavens shaking. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 13. He writes, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel 
with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation. Remember that word from last week and to destroy its sinners from it for the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah is looking forward to the great day of the Lord. The day we understand as the coming of Christ, a day of judgment. And he prophesies all of these same signs that Jesus then says will be seen, will be obvious in the heavens. We read last week, it is as obvious as the lightning that shines from the east to the west. That would be like the coming of the Son of Man. You can't miss it. And you can't miss the sun going dark, right? <laughs> these cosmic signs at the return of Jesus. Then he goes on in verse 30 and says, uh, there, um, gives us some specific signs. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then go down to verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Some very particular language that's found throughout the prophets to speak of the eschaton, right? The return of Jesus. Now that first part of it, they will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What is the sign of the Son of Man? Well, Constantine thought he saw it, if you know your church history, uh, a couple hundred years after Jesus came. And it was some sign in the clouds for him to go rule and go conquer in Jesus' name. So he thought he saw it then. A lot of people think this sign in heaven is just a description of the Son of Man himself. And Jesus returning, seeing him, is seeing the sign. It's the same thing. Another option that I think is Intriguing is uh, the idea that this sign is translated in other place as a signal or as a banner. In fact, we read when a trumpet sounds, there's often some sort of banner that is unfurled to announce the arrival of a king. You see that in earthly language, and we see that in prophetic eschatology language. Again, to quote Isaiah 18, he says, When a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown here. So we have these, these massive signs, these unmistakable, can't-be-missed signs, but all of it is dwarfed by the return of Jesus himself. Verse 30 continues. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This prophetic description, Jesus is saying is going to be fulfilled at his return. One like the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, I grew up watching this TV show about clouds called Care Bears. Anybody watch that? This is not like Care Bears, okay? There's these cute little stuffed animals that have these little cloud cars. It's not like that. When we see clouds in Scripture, they are terrifying. They are huge. They come with thunder and lightning, right? We see clouds and smoke at Mount Sinai, right, that covers the mountain. The people are scared to approach it. We see when the, at the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle is finished, smoke and the glory of God fills the tabernacle. We see in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and the temple is filled 
with shaking and clouds and smoke. And he says, woe is me. We see even in Jesus' day, in the transfiguration, he goes up on the mountain and he is revealed for a moment in all of his glory, surrounded by a cloud. Remember how that cloud is described? It's bright. (laughs) This is called the Shekinah glory of God. These aren't cute, cuddly clouds. (laughs) These are massive, glorious, thundering, lightning, powerful clouds that dwarf all of these other signs. And what is Jesus, what is going to happen later on in the book of Acts when Jesus ascends into heaven? He ascends in a cloud and the disciples are told that's how he's coming back. They can't miss cloud and glory of the return of Jesus. Now, what's the result of that? What's the result of such a massive, glorious, powerful, terrifying cloud upon which the king comes in all of his glory to return. Well, there are two responses in this text. There's only one of two responses describes everyone in the world. There is either, verse 30, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, or there's the end of verse 31, and a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four ends, from one end of heaven to the other. What is the description here? The description is of the entire world, all of the nations, and that out of those nations, God is drawing his people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, where the gospel goes forth victoriously to spread the news about Jesus. Men, women, and children will bend the knee and believe upon Christ such that at his return, while the nations throughout the world will mourn and grieve, for he comes in judgment, out of those nations will come his precious, beloved, elect people. And they will not be mourning. We will be rejoicing. The elect will be gathered. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was at the end of his time in Jerusalem, right before he left Jerusalem? He said, I would have gathered you like a mother hen, but you would not come to me. You would not believe. The people rejecting Christ, and so upon his return, they will mourn. What do we do with such a passage like this? What do we do with so much thunder and glory and might. Paul tells us in Titus 2 what to do with it. He writes, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, if you are a Christian, this is your blessed hope. Your hope for this world might have fallen apart this week. That relationship might have ended. That job might have fallen through. That application to the school you wanted might have been rejected. All of those things we hope in in this world. All of those kindnesses of God to us. Some we get and some we don't get. But if you are a Christian trusting in the Lord, this is your blessed hope. And it is sure. And it is certain. And you will be gathered. You will be brought in as the elect, as the beloved chosen of God. And we live and we await through the birth pains, through the trials and tribulations, through the wars and rumors of war. We wait under the banner of the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can discuss 
exactly what these verses mean and talk about. What we can't discuss is whether we have a blessed hope or not in Jesus. Because that is true. And that is certain. Christ is coming again. And here are the signs when he returns. At the end of verse 31, he ends this lengthy section speaking of all of the signs of this age culminating in the return of Jesus and the ushering in of the new age. And then he gives a figurative, uh, he gives a figure of speech. He uses uh, a metaphor of a fig tree to describe this. We pick up in verses 32 and we see now the signs until Christ returns. Look at this image of a fig tree. Remember, he's already cursed a fig tree. So it's sort of already fresh in their mind. Uh, He has uh, uh, already used a different metaphor of labor and birth pains. Now he uses this metaphor of a fig tree. Even if we're not into planting or don't know what fig trees are, we can still follow this pretty easily. Verse 32 is paralleled by verse 33. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you see leaves and you know something is near, summer. Leaves equal summer near. All right, there's our equation. I don't think I could dumb it down any less words than that, right? Verse 33, see also, so here's what the metaphor is pointing to. See also, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, yeah, verse 33. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So you see leaves and you see all these things. Leaves mean you know he's near. All these things mean you know he's near. Not yet here, but near. The, the, the changing of the leaves are the sign not that summer has arrived, but that summer is near. That the new age, the age to come, the season to come is near. So too do we know when we see all these things, whatever that is, we'll come back to that, we know that he is near. So whatever all these things mean, It must mean something about the the end of spring, right, to use the metaphor, the closing of one age, anticipating the beginning of another age. So what do these things mean? Again, we've got lots of options. One option for what these things, all these things, there uh, in verse 33 and 34, one option uh, is that this refers to the second coming of Jesus. All these things is verses 4 all the way to verse, where do we stop? 31. And you see all these things, it means that the coming is near. The, The challenge with that interpretation is verse 34, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things has taken place. We're hard pressed to interpret this generation to be anything but the the people living right then. That seems to be the most natural interpretation of this generation. It could be sort of the the godly people that are throughout the age. That's a possibility. I I don't think that's what the phrase means. So a second option is that all these things refer to the fall of Jerusalem. We've talked a lot about this. It's something significant that happens. So maybe all these things refer to the fall of Jerusalem. Then this takes place this age. Well, that becomes pretty easy to understand, right? This generation will see all those things. However, I think there's a third option. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a better option. 
And that's to see all these things referring to all of the general pains, the general birth pains we talked about last week, that characterize this age. There's this age and there's the age to come. And I argued last week that we best understand the trial and tribulations, the famines, the earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of war, the persecution. We best understand all of that as starting at Pentecost and continuing until the return of Jesus. So if all these things refer to this entire period of general birth pains, including the destruction of the temple, then it's right to say Jesus' generation will see the beginning of that. It's all going to take place in their generation. And it will continue to take place in every generation unto the return of Christ. He is warning them that the tribulation will come upon them, but it will not end with them. We can read this today, understanding we live in the same age between the advents of Jesus and be warned that all of those things take place in our day as well. So what do we know? What does he tell us that we know? We know these signs. We know that there is a sustained period of tribulation for the church. And we know that we continue to live in an age when, we are per- when the church is persecuted, when there are wars and rumors of war, when there is famine, when there are earthquakes, when lawlessness is on the rise. All of that describes a sustained period of tribulation in this age, which is to be immediately followed, as Jesus says, by his return and the age to come. That immediately, it is impending. If we look at all of Earth's history as just a few major events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, we've had three of them. There's one more to go. It's immediately next. Ain't nothing else happening until the end of this age and the return of Jesus and the consummation of the age to come. Now, I've tried to be clear. I'm sure some of you are confused. Look at the last verse of this section. For those who are confused, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That means if you're confused, you trust him. Because everything else is going to pass away, but not his word. He knows what he's talking about. And that's not going to pass away. In the confusion, in the chaos, in the crush of this life, we have the one in whom we trust who holds all things in his hands. The one who rules over all of his creation. We don't have to worry about trusting our very right and particular interpretation. We can trust the one who knows and who holds all things in his hands. That's what we know. We know the signs. But if there's one age, and then if there's an age to come, when is that going to happen? And that is what we don't know. I want to show you that secondly in this passage. What we don't know are the times. If you're taking notes, that's verse 36 to 42. Verse 36 to 42. You see how he begins. No one knows, verse 42. You do not know. I want to show you real quick under this second point, the principle, the picture, and then the problem. The principle is that first verse, verse 36. No one knows. That's it. Everything else is a description of this one idea that no one knows when Jesus will return. That no one includes the disciples. No one includes you and me. 
that no one includes the angels and that no one apparently includes the son, Jesus himself. Now, of all the confounding things, this might be the most confounding, right? How does Jesus not know when he's going to return? We're sort of in the the deep end of the theological pool with a verse like this. So what do we know, real quick, this is a sidebar, an important sidebar, about Jesus? We can say confidently that he's fully God and that he's fully man. People have argued about that. It's inarguable in the orthodox faith of the church throughout the centuries. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man in one person. He is two natures in one person. Doesn't mean one nature is less than another. He's not partially one and all the other. He doesn't appear to be one, but he's really the other. He doesn't dress up as one or act like one, but he's really the other. Those two natures, right, they don't mix with each other. He doesn't become some sort of third thing. No, he's divine and he's human. We know what those are. We can't wrap our minds around how those things are 100% together in one person, but those natures don't mix. So we know that God doesn't get hungry, but Jesus says he's hungry, right? We know that God doesn't get tired, but Jesus in his humanity says he gets tired. We know that God knows everything, but Jesus in his humanity says there's some things he doesn't know. The point of it is to press upon us that no one knows. And if somebody out there tries to tell you they know something that Jesus Jesus doesn't know, don't listen to them, right? (laughs) That's the principle. No one knows when Jesus will return. What's the picture of that? The picture of that is in verses 37 to 41. The picture is an unexpected return. That's how we can summarize all these verses. They just are telling us it's unexpected. People will be caught unaware because they don't know. If you knew, you would be aware. You would expect it. If you don't know, you're caught unaware. He gives two examples. One, life in the days of Noah. You can go back to Genesis, right? You know, Noah told to build this big ark and all these other people are living around him. Uh, they wonder why he's building this giant boat, all right? And they're going on as if life is normal. They're eating, they're drinking, they're getting married, They're being given in marriage, having kids, raising family. They're going through ordinary life. If they knew a giant flood was going to come in two days, they probably wouldn't have a wedding, right? It's unexpected. They're going about their ordinary daily life such that they are unaware when a flood comes. Now, there's debate over whether there really was a flood or if it was just a local flood or a worldwide flood. I'm not going to get into that except to tell you that Jesus believed there was a flood. <laughs> then we get to the examples in verse 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Again, we have options here. You could interpret this, again, as still speaking of the advance and attack of the Roman army on Jerusalem in the year 70. And it comes as such a surprise and such a forceful uh, military wave that this is what happens to the people. That's one option. Another option that you, of course, have heard is the idea of a rapture. That Jesus will return and will take certain people along with him uh, and leave others and then come back at another time. I want to show you why I don't believe uh, there is a rapture or that these verses speak of a rapture. I believe Jesus is again speaking clearly, simply about what will happen at his return. And it will be like the days of Noah. It will be sudden and expected. 
Did you see what happened in his example of the days of Noah? There's two groups of people. One group get in the ark. The other group are swept away. That same example is given with two people in the field. One is left and one is taken away. But the parallel to taken away is not taken to glory. It's taken away in judgment. It's those who are judged that are swept away. Those who are left, that's the remnant of the people of God at the return of Jesus. Same with the two women in verse 41. One will be taken parallel with swept away in the judgment of the flood, and one will be left. Do you see the tension here? The tension is Jesus tells us all of these signs, but then he says everything's going to happen suddenly, and you're not going to know it. If you're here with us this morning and you don't believe in Jesus and you don't believe in God and you don't believe what I'm talking about, number one, I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful someone invited you to come to church today. But my word to you would be Jesus' word to you and that would be don't be caught unaware. Don't be caught unaware. You might think all this talk of the turn of Jesus and judgment is all a bunch of hooey, right? You know, it's all a bunch of weird religious people believing all this stuff literally about Jesus returning. Just let me warn you, the same people that believed that were those laughing at Noah when he built the ark. And Noah and his family found safety in the ark when the judgment of God came upon the world. And Jesus has come himself as the ark of safety in anticipation of the coming of the judgment of God. And just because God hasn't come yet, don't think that means he's not going to come. Because just like in Noah's day, they're going about their regular ordinary business and then a guy believes something really weird (laughs) and he is spared in the ark Jesus is the better ark who offers safety from the judgment of God to come to enter that ark is to trust and believe in Jesus today you see the problem here the problem in the final verse is that we look at a world that looks pretty normal. And night follows day and day follows night. Season follows seasons. And what are we going to do after church? We're going to go get something to eat. They're going to eat tonight. They're going to go to sleep. We're going to get up. And then maybe someone's going to get married in the future and have kids and raise a family and, and, and go about ordinary, normal life just like Noah's day. And what does Jesus say in the final verse, verse 42? Stay awake. The problem is falling asleep. Nobody's doing anything sinful. I'm sorry. There's lots of sin going on in Noah's day, but eating and drinking and marrying, that's not the sinful part. That's just ordinary life. But ordinary life dulls us to spiritual reality. And Jesus' warning is don't let the normalcy of this world dull you to the certain truth that he's going to return. Don't let the fact that he hasn't returned for 2,000 years convince you that he's never going to return. So one author says, rather than focusing on the date of Christ's coming, the disciples are to concentrate on being ready at any time. The next three weeks, we're going to see parables about being ready, about watchfulness. So I'll explain more as we go what that means, application in our lives. But as we close this morning, it simply means be vigilant, be alert. It speaks to a state of readiness, not Fear, you've heard this line, you don't want to do that sin and get caught when Jesus returns. It's not that. It's trusting in Christ 
today. It's not putting off to tomorrow what God calls us to today, to trust and rest in him. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks why Jesus teaches us about the end times. And it answers, in order to shake off carnal security. Carnal security is trusting the things of this world. Because if, we didn't know, if, if he told us nothing of his return, we would just trust the things of this world. He warns us to wake up. He shows us that he is the ark of safety. His return is sure. And we live, we enter that ark and live by faith today. There's things we know and there's things we don't know. Jesus gives us everything we need to live by faith until he returns. To quote a favorite verse of many, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the works of his law. What are the secret things? That's when he's going to return. What are the revealed things? That he is going to return. Stay awake. Trust Christ. For though heaven and earth will pass away, his words never will. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a, a dull people. And we confess that in the normal rhythms and patterns of life, we can forget spiritual realities all around us. I pray, O oh God, that you would wake us up. I pray that even in this very hour, you would give a sense of urgency to one who has delayed faith for too long. That you would break us of our self-reliance and put our trust in Jesus. And that we would be ready, whether it is tomorrow or whether it is in another century, we will be ready by being found trusting in Christ today for his return. Lord, indeed, give us